So please take your Bibles and turn to Romans chapter 5. Romans chapter 5. So we will be looking at the second half of this chapter, 12, verses 12 through 21. Uh, we're going to look at it in two parts because I got a little overambitious when, when I was making notes for this. Uh, so rather than try to cram everything and um, do a poor job, I'll just do a, hopefully a better job over two weeks. So, um, so, but I will read verses 12 through 21 since it's considered a whole and I want to make sure we have the context as we go into it. So Romans chapter 5, starting in verse 12. Wherefore, as by one man sin entered into the world, and death by sin, and so death passed upon all men, for that all have sinned. For until the law, sin was in the world, but sin is not imputed where there is no law. Nevertheless, death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over them that had not sinned after the similitude of Adam's transgression, who is the figure of him that was to come. But not as the offense, so also is the free gift. For through the offense of one, many be dead, much more the grace of God and the gift by grace, which is by one man, Jesus Christ, hath abounded unto many. And not as it was by one that sinned, so is the gift. For the judgment was by one to condemnation, but the free gift is of many offenses unto justification. For if by one man's offense death reigned by one, much more... They uh, which receive abundance of grace and of the gift of righteousness shall reign in life by one, Jesus Christ. Therefore, as by the offense of one judgment came upon all men to condemnation, even so by the righteousness of one, the free gift came upon all men unto justification of life. For as by one man's disobedience, many were made sinners. So by the obedience of one shall many be made righteous. Moreover, the law entered that the offense might abound, but where sin abounded, grace did much more abound. That sin hath reigned unto death, even so grace reigned through righteousness unto eternal life by Jesus Christ our Lord. So last week we looked, we finished uh, Romans 5, verses 6 through 11. And in that section, just a little recap, in that section we looked and discuss the amazing and comprehensible love of God for us in Christ, how God showed and demonstrated his love. And we talked about how demonstrated sort of like side by side, how you have this is human love. Now let me show you God's love. And we show that God's love was demonstrated toward us in that while we were at our worst point in life, while we were still sinners, Christ died for the ungodly. And then having been reconciled by the death of Christ, much more now are we saved by his life and saved from the wrath of God through Christ. So God reconciled us to himself while we were sinners. He, he brought us together while we were sinners. And now that we are justified, he, we are going to be saved by his life. Now, there was a question last week uh, that was raised, and I, I answered it. But I want to kind of delve into that question a little bit more uh, here at the, at the outset. And the question was... Um, in verse 10, so I know this is not in our section that we're looking at, but in verse 10, where he says, For if we were, when we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more being reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. And in that, in that verse, the question was, when Paul says in verse 10, much more being reconciled, we shall be saved by his life, 
Was Paul referring to Christ's earthly life? Was Paul referring to the, the righteous life that Christ lived in obedience to the law? In other words, we are saved by his righteousness. And that was the question. And I said last week that it is certainly true we are saved by his life in that sense. We are saved in the sense that when we appear before God, it is not our deeds that are seen. It is Christ's righteousness. It is imputed to us through faith. It is given to us. His righteousness is applied to us by faith. So when God looks upon us, he doesn't see Jerry or Opal or anybody. You know, he doesn't see our sin. He sees the righteousness of Jesus Christ. That's how he sees us. He sees us through that lens. And of course, it was um, coming from the OPC, the late, great J. Gresham Machen, who once said, I am so thankful for the active obedience of Christ. There is no hope without it. Now, there's this in theology circles. We have this discussion talking about the active obedience of Christ and the passive obedience of Christ. The active obedience of Christ is just basically how Christ obeyed the law. He actively obeyed the law. He kept the law in all of its fullness. He, he obeyed every single uh, commandment of God in both thought and deed and word. And then his passive obedience is how he went up and gave himself to die on the cross. He, you know, passive in, in Latin, the word passive means suffering. So he suffered on the cross for us. So active obedience, Christ's righteous life. Passive obedience is death on the cross. And Machen is 100% correct. There is no hope without the active obedience of Jesus Christ. It is his obedience, as we said, is given to us. It is applied to us through faith. By grace through faith, we have that righteousness. And that's what saves us. That is what saves us. But I also don't think that is what Paul is really referring to here in verse 10. Because here the contrast is between the death of Christ and then his subsequent resurrection and ascension into heaven. Again, notice how he compares it. He says, first we are reconciled by his death. Now much more shall we be saved by his life. And I think the point there is that Christ doesn't stop after his life, death, and resurrection. His benefits to us don't stop after his life and death and resurrection. Uh, just a couple of verses. You don't have to turn to these. Actually, five verses. <laughs> but um, you, just, you can note these references down if you'd like. But John 5.26 says, For as the Father hath life in himself, so he has given to the Son to have life in himself. So the Son has life just as the Father has life. And that's the life that the Son gives to us, eternal life. John chapter 6, verses 40 and 57 and this is the will of him that sent me, that everyone which sees the Son and believes on him may have everlasting life. And I will raise him up on the last day. As the living Father has sent me, and I live by the Father, so he that eats my flesh shall live by me. So here again, as uh, he who believes in the Son will have everlasting life. And Jesus says, I will raise him up. That is, again, something he will do post-resurrection. He will come and he will raise and give life to people uh, on earth. And again, John 11, 25 and 26, this is uh, the raising of Lazarus, and he says to Martha, his sister, uh, I am the resurrection and the life. He that believeth in me, though he were dead, yet he shall live. 
And whosoever liveth and believeth in me shall never die. And he says, do you believe this? Colossians 3, 3 and 4. Uh, Paul writes, for you are dead and your life is hid with Christ in God. When Christ, who is our life, appears, then you shall also appear with him in glory. So again, here's the benefit of Christ's life after resurrection. When he appears, we will appear with him in glory. So we will be glorified uh, upon his return. These are things that Jesus is doing for us that are above and beyond just the righteousness that he gives to us. And then finally, uh, Hebrews 7.25 talks about wherefore he is able, that is Christ, he is able to save them, that is us who believe in him, to the uttermost that come unto God by him, seeing that he lives ever to make intercession for them. So again, here we see Jesus Christ in his role as the great high priest intercedes for us on our behalf with God the Father at his right hand. He is our great high priest who intercedes for us, who, who pleads our case to the Father. So all these passages that I just read speak of how the resurrected Christ is still saving us. Not just his, his righteous life that he gives to us by faith. He is still saving us actively in his resurrected, ascended state at the right hand of the Father. Now, as we look at Romans 5, verses 12 through 21, we're really only going to get through 14 today. But we're going to start seeing here a contrast. So after telling us about how the life of Christ saves us, after telling us how the life of Christ saves us, we're going to, Paul is going to start looking at a contrast here between Jesus and Adam, okay? And between the sin of Adam and the obedience of Christ, between what Adam passed on to his posterity, to those who come after him, and what Christ passes on to us, all of us who are in Christ, we're going to see how sin is imputed to us by, from Adam to his descendants. We're going to see two covenant heads here, two people with whom uh, a covenant was made. And, and in them, all those who are in them receive the blessings or the curses of those covenants. Now, it's a lot that's contained in these 10 verses, which is why we're going to take two weeks to go over it. But here I said this passage presents us with what I like to call a tale of two Adams. A tale of two Adams. You've got Adam, the first one, and then Jesus Christ, who is often referred to as the second or the last Adam. And then in verse 12, we're going to see how we get death comes uh, into the world by sin. Uh, verses 13 through 17, we're going to see Adam versus Jesus Christ, sort of a compare and contrast. And then in verses 18 through 21, which you know we're going to get to this next week, but we're going to see life in Adam and life in Christ. But anyway, let us look at verse 12 first, okay? So if you recall last time we closed by asking the question, how could the actions of one man save all those who believe in him? That would be after Paul finishes uh, Romans 5, 1 through 10, or 1 through 11, a question could be asked. Again, remember, we, we, you know, Paul uses this uh, technique throughout the letter called the diatribe where he sort of presents a teaching, and then he sort of anticipates a question someone might have regarding that teaching, and then he goes on to answer it. And when you get to the end of verse 11 of chapter 5, you might think, how could one man's actions save a bunch of people? How can we be saved by the actions and the obedience of one man? And I think that's a fair question. I think that's a very fair question. 
Because doesn't it seem to remove accountability from us to believe that the actions of one man, even a man as special as the Lord Jesus Christ, can save the lives of many? I mean, we're kind of, particularly in this country, we're kind of ingrained to think of you take responsibilities for your own actions. Now, maybe there might be a segment of our population that doesn't believe this anymore, that thinks, you know, they can pass off responsibility. It's always someone else's fault. But I think for the most part, people still believe that you, what you do should be rewarded if it's good and what you do should be punished if it's bad. When we believe in taking responsibility for our own actions. In fact, I don't know about anybody else here, but the concept of participation trophies is offensive to me. Why should anybody get a trophy just for showing up? You get the trophy for winning, right? You, you, know, you don't get a trophy for showing, you know, getting eighth place in a league of eight teams. It just doesn't seem right to me, okay? But God's economy, things work a little different, okay? So if you want to answer the question, how can the actions of one man save many, we need to look at, how, we need to look at the question of how the actions of one man condemned all to sin. And that's what you see here in verse 12. Where Paul says, therefore, just as through one man, sin entered the world and death through sin and thus death spread to all men because all have sinned. Now, of course, the one man through whom sin entered the world is Adam. Uh, Just as a side note, it's very common even for some in the conservative Bible believing uh, sector of Christianity to treat Genesis 1 through 11 as myth or allegory or even like a parable. Uh, These people may be serious when it comes to sin and faith in Jesus, etc. But when it comes to Genesis 1 through 11, uh, this is treated like either poetry or parable or story. In other words, not to be taken literally. So these Christians would look at science and evolution and conclude that the earth must be billions of years old because that's what science tells us. That mankind evolved from lower primates, because that's what science tells us. And that there's no way that there could have been a historical person called Adam. He must be some kind of mythical figurehead or, you know, a, a, a parabolic type of figure in a story. Now, if any of that is true, it, was, it would be news to the Apostle Paul. Because the Apostle Paul did not treat Genesis 1 through 11 as myth. He didn't treat it as allegory. He didn't treat it as parable. He didn't think of Adam as just some kind of fictitious person to tell bedtime stories to young Jewish children at night. He thought of Adam as a real person. In fact, in these verses, he treats Adam as a real historical person. Because if Adam wasn't real, if Adam was not a real person, then this comparison between Adam and Jesus Christ would be invalid. How can you compare a real person to a fictitious person? It wouldn't, the, the, the analogies would fall apart. And then if that's also true, then his whole argument in this section, 12 through 21, would fall apart. And then so, by the way, does our salvation. Our salvation would fall apart. Because if, we haven't, if we're not in Adam as sinners, then we're not going to be in Christ as saved. But anyway, the story of sin entering the world can be found in Genesis 3. Let's, let's turn to Genesis 3. In Genesis uh, chapter 3, starting in verse 6, and I'll read through verse 16. And when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was pleasant to the eyes, and a tree to be desired to make one wise, she took of the fruit thereof and did eat, and gave also unto her husband with her, and he did eat. 
And the eyes of them both were opened, and they knew that they were naked, and that they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves aprons. And then uh, and they heard the voice of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and Adam and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God amongst the trees of the garden. And the Lord God called unto Adam and said unto him, Where art thou? And he said, I heard thy voice in the garden. I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. And he said, Who told thee that thou wast naked? Hast thou eaten of the tree whereof I commanded thee that thou shouldst not eat? And the man said, The woman whom thou gavest to be with me, she gave me of the tree and I did eat. It's always finger pointing, right? <laughs> Speaking of taking responsibility when you're caught in a sin and you're, you're called out on it, you're like, okay, who can I point my finger at? Okay, Eve. <laughs> I went to sleep single. I woke up married. I had no choice in this bride. You could have given me any woman, and you gave me this one who tempted me to sin. I'm going to point my finger at her. And the Lord God said unto the woman, verse 13, What is this that thou hast done? And the woman said, The serpent beguiled me, and I did eat. (laughs) Adam points to his wife. His wife points to the snake. You know, everyone's finger pointing. It's like, I didn't do anything. It's these things. Basically, what they're saying is, it's your fault, God. That's kind of where it's going to lead to, right? The woman you gave me, the snake you put in the garden, all that stuff. Verse 14, the Lord God said unto the serpent, because thou hast done this, thou art cursed above all cattle and above every beast of the field. Upon thy belly shalt thou go, and dust shalt thou eat all the days of thy life. And I will put enmity between thee and the woman, between thy seed and her seed. Uh, He shall bruise his head and uh, thou shall bruise his heel unto the woman. He said, and it goes on and on and on. So he talks about the curses there. But here you see the record of the first human sin. Mankind was originally created good, and after the image of God and true righteousness and holiness, as we read in Heidelberg Catechism, Lord's Day 3, question 6, we were created in true righteousness, or true holiness and righteousness. Uh, It was the serpent, which is Satan, who beguiled, tempted Adam and Eve into eating the forbidden fruit. Now, again, I said this is the record of the first human sin. Now, it's not the first sin. Okay, we need to be clear because Satan has already rebelled at this point, right? Now, there's no concrete time frame. This is a little bit of a rabbit trail, but I'll get back. There's no concrete time frame by which we know the fall of Satan and his demons. There are some who say that there was a gap between verses 1 and 2 of chapter 1. So where it says, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And then in verse 2, it says, And the earth was without form and void. Some people in that gap like to insert that there was an angelic fall, which then produced a judgment, which was why then the earth was, in verse 2, without form and void. You know, it was formless, it was void, you know, sort of like a desolate place. So there was a recreation. Now, there's literally no biblical credence for this gap insertion between verses 1 and 2. It is... Literally just a speculation. It is pure conjecture. My personal theory is that it happened sometime between Genesis 1.31 and Genesis 3.1. So Genesis 1.31, at the end of that verse, when God finishes all of his creation, he says he looks upon it and he says it is very good. It is very good. But then in Genesis 3.1, we have the crafty serpent who comes in and deceives Eve. 
Now, it would be very odd for God to look on his creation, which includes the heavens and the earth. So the unseen and the seen, the visible and the invisible. It would be very odd for God to look on his creation and see it was very good if there was a third of the angels who had already fallen at that point. It would be very good except for those, <laughs> those you know, Satan and his, and his demons who, who rebelled. Anyway, back on the right trail. So with sin entering the world, we see death enter in through sin. Paul will say in Romans 6.23 that the wages of sin is death. What you get for sin, what you earn from sin, your wages, is death. And that's what God told Adam and Eve back in the garden. Genesis 2.17, he says, But of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat of it, for in the day that you eat thereof, you will surely die. And the Hebrew says, dying you will die. Now, I'm sure we've talked about this before, but we all know that Adam and Eve did not die immediately upon eating the fruit. It wasn't like they took a bite and then they dropped dead. We do see things like that happen where somebody commits a sin and then they drop dead on the spot. Nadab and Abihu offered a strange fire unto the Lord and they drop dead on the spot as judgment. Uh, Uzzah reaches to touch the ark as it's falling and he drops dead on the spot. Adam and Eve did not drop dead on the spot. But the perfect communion that they had with God in the creation was broken because of their sin. They had indeed introduced sin now into God's very good creation. But they didn't drop dead in the spot. And what, is, what did the serpent say? He said, you know, if you eat of it, you're not going to die. Was the serpent right? Let's take a poll. Was the serpent right? We'll do Bible interpretation by democracy here, by vote. Who says the serpent was right? Jane, you think the serpent was right? <laughs> Okay. <laughs> Who thinks the serpent was, was lying to, to Eve? You can raise your hand. It's church. It's okay. It's a Sunday school. It's not a church service. Okay. Um, no, the serpent was not right. Because in Genesis three seventeen through 19, we see, Then to Adam he says, Because you have heeded the voice of your wife and have eaten from the tree of which I commanded you, saying you shall not eat of it, cursed is the ground for your sake, and toil you shall eat. Of it all the days of your life, both thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the herb of the field. In the sweat of your face you shall eat bread, till you return to the ground, for out of it you were taken. For dust you are, and dust you shall return. In other words, Adam was going to die. Out of the dust God made him, and to the dust he's going to return. No longer will Adam have the, the opportunity of eternal life given to him. It's been taken away because of his sin. And now he's going to live a life of slow decay and death. Mankind was cursed to return to the dust from which God made him. And moreover, being expelled from Eden, Eden they were expelled from Eden, the garden. Uh, they were barred access to the tree of life because in the garden was also the tree of life. And you don't see the tree of life anymore until when? Anybody know? When, when do you see the tree of life again? Revelation. In Revelation. Way at the end of Revelation too, right? As, as they now enter in, as the new uh, heavenly Jerusalem comes down, you now access has been granted again to the tree of life in which it bears forth its fruit in every month. It's a new fruit each season. They are given access back to the tree of life. But it's been barred now. They no longer have this access to the, to the life that is promised for their obedience. So temptation opened the door. 
Sin got its foot in the door. And then with that opening, death creeps into the house of God's good creation. Now, of course, what Adam did had ramifications on all of mankind. He says, death spread to all men because all sinned. Because of what Adam did, the entire human race has fallen into sin. This word here, the word spread, um, in this phrase, in the King James it says pass, but in New King James it says spread. Death spread to all men. Um, that word is diarchami. It literally means to go through, to pass through. So an illustration, if you were on your way from Lincoln to Denver on, and you were on US 6, you would diarchami through Sutton. You would pass through Sutton on your way from Lincoln to Denver on US 6. But it also carries the connotation of spreading, going abroad. Sort of, you know, think of how, you know, you take your, your hefty towel and you have the, the spill on the countertop. You put the hefty towel on the spill and you can see the, the liquid just, you know, kind of permeate through the entire towel. That's kind of what's going on here. So Adam's sin allowed death to enter into the world. And then from that fountainhead, death went through, it passed, it permeated, it spread to all men. How do we know this? Because all men have sinned, right? We all sin. Now, at this point, we're not told how all, all sinned, but this is what we call the doctrine of original sin. It is the teaching that because of Adam's sin, the entire human race is infected. It is infected with a spiritual virus called sin. In fact, our own catechism, the Heidelberg Lord's Day 3, question 7 says, From where then does this depraved nature of man come from? The answer is from the fall and disobedience of our first parents, Adam and Eve, in paradise, whereby our nature became so corrupt that we are all conceived and born in sin. Now, Paul's going to talk a little bit more about the transmission of sin from Adam to the whole human race later in verses 18 and following, which we'll look at next week. But now Paul is going to do a famous kind of Pauline detour okay, in verses 13 through 17. Now, you can turn back to Romans if you haven't already. Um, you may notice, I think it's also in the New King James as well, in verses 13 through 17, do you have parentheses around those verses? Yeah. Okay, so that's the translator's note way of saying, this is sort of like a detour in Paul's thought. It's a parenthetical thought. It's, it really, his thought, his, his argument can go from 12 to verse 18 with no uh, interruption. But he's going to take a bit of a detour here in verses 13 through 17, where he's going to compare Adam and Jesus Christ. So look again here at 13 and 14, and when we get through 14, that's where we'll stop. But where he says, For until the law, sin was in the world, but sin is not imputed where there is no law. Nevertheless, death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those who had not sinned according to the likeness of the transgression of Adam, who is a type of him who was to come. Now, like, what in the world are you talking about here, Paul? What is going on here, Paul? What are you talking about? Well, if you remember when we looked at the end of Romans chapter 4, and we talked about how the promises were made to Abraham, and they were made to him on the basis of faith, not according to his works of the law. 
right? That's what we read in, the, in those sections. The promise that, that God made to Abraham, the covenant promise, it wasn't based on his obedience. It wasn't based on his performance of the law. It was based on his faith. It was given to him by faith. And then we looked at Galatians chapter 3, and we, you know, in that, it's like a parallel a little bit there. In, in Galatians 3, Paul says that the law came 430 years after Abraham. That's why the promise couldn't be made on the basis of works righteousness, because there was no law yet. He hadn't given the law yet. Now, a similar question can be asked of Paul here. How can there be any sin if there was no law, Right? I mean, one of the definitions of sin is a transgression of the law. You know, in fact, the Westminster Catechism says that sin is any lack of or want of conformity unto the law of God. Okay, so how can there be sin if there's no law? I mean, to me, it would seem like no law, no sin, right? That seems like a pretty logical statement to me. Paul's response, though, here is that even before the law, he says sin was in the world. Because death reigned from Adam to Moses. Uh, I think I had you prematurely going back to Romans. But go back to, <laughs> to Genesis 5. Or, yeah, Genesis 5, please. Look with me at certain verses here. Let's look at verse 5 of Genesis 5. And all the days that Adam lived were 930 years, and he died. Now look at verse 8. All the days of Seth were 912 years, and he died. Verse 11, all the days of Enos were 905 years and he died. Verse 14, all the days of Canaan were 910 years and he died. Verse 17, all the days of Mahalalel were 890 and five years and he died. Verse 20, all the days of Jared were 960 and two years and he died. In verse 31, or verse 27, all the days of Methuselah were 969 years, and he died. Verse 31, all the days of Lamech were 777 years, and he died. Is there a common phrase there that I, in those verses I read? And he died. Death reigned from Adam to Moses. That phrase, and he died, uh, Vayamot, appears eight times. The only exception is Enoch who was walked with the Lord, he was righteous, and he was sort of taken up into heaven uh, straight from the earth, and, and um, he's the only exception. So how do we know that sin was in the world? Because people died. Here's a list of people dying. <laughs> people made in the image of Adam, as verse 3 of chapter 5 says. He says, Adam was made in the image of God, and then he begat a son in his own image, that fallen image, that corrupt image, was, was passed on to Seth. Now, in verse 13, it's really kind of unfortunate that the New King James uses that word imputed. Because when we think of imputation, we think of imputation of righteousness by grace through faith to us, right? And then we think of the imputation of sin to Christ. Our sin goes to Christ. Christ's righteousness comes to us. We use that word imputation. It has a very kind of technical theological meaning that we understand. And it's unfortunate that the translation here uses that word. Uh, it's not that the word impute doesn't mean impute. It does. It's just that it, it carries a technical meaning in the world of theology. 
You know, we, again, we said, I said, we speak of the imputation of Christ's righteousness. We speak of our sin being imputed to him. And then we also speak of the sin of Adam being imputed to all of his descendants. So when Paul says here, sin is not imputed where there is no law, I think it would be more accurate to say that sin is not charged. Sin is not recorded. In other words, you can't have a transgression of the law if there's no law to transgress. So there's no mark technically put on the account of somebody who sinned without the law. In fact, that's what some of the other more modern English translations say. Uh, They either say sin is not charged, sin is not counted, or there is no counting for sin. In other words, there's no official violation of the law where there's no law. That does not mean that there is no sin, nor does it mean that there is no transgression of God's commands. We we talk about the law written on our hearts, um, but there... But it's, so because of that, there is an understanding of violating God's uh, standards. But in this case, what Paul's making the argument is, is that you don't have violations of the law because there's no law yet given. But yet you still see sin being passed from generation to generation because death reigns in this um, period. And that phrase is a very interesting phrase. Death reigned. So even though there was no law, no charging of violations, Death is still king. Death is reigning over us. Thanks to sin entering the world through Adam, death now controls. Death now rules the life of men. We are governed by death. That's a reality of this world now thanks to the fall. As we saw earlier, all men die. God told told Adam after he sinned, You are dust, and unto dust you shall return. You are going to die. Death now reigns over your life. Death is like an invading army. It has conquered humanity and set up its rule over us. Now, Paul has this very interesting, I call it an enigmatic phrase. He says, even over those who had not sinned according to the likeness of the transgression of Adam. What in the world is Paul talking about here? Well, what Paul is saying is that death comes to all men, even though they, that is all men, did not violate the original command that Adam received in the garden. In other words, they did not sin in the exact same way that Adam sinned. How did Adam sin? Adam was placed in the garden. Adam was given a command, don't eat of this tree. He failed. He sinned. That was Adam's sin. Now the sins of people after that are not sins like that one. From the time of Adam until Moses, no other revealed law, no other revealed commandment has been issued. Again, but death still reigns supreme from Adam until Moses, even over those who had not sinned in the same way that Adam did. Now, what's up with that? What's up with that? Here's what's going on. And again, we're only going to scratch the surface of this today. You have to come back. It's two weeks because next week we'll have Mission Fest and uh, Reverend Vanderhart will be here. He'll be talking about missions. Uh, So you're going to have to delay gratification on hearing the rest of the story for two weeks. Sorry, that's just the way it is. (laughs) But here's what we're going to talk about for the remainder of our time. Paul says that Adam is a type of him who was to come. 
Now, any guesses here who the him who was to come is? Jesus, right. Uh, just use the very, the, the, what is it, the famous Sunday school answer to any question that is asked. Jesus, right? You're probably going to get it right more, than, more often than not. But in this case, it is actually true. The one who is to come is Jesus. What Paul is saying here, Adam is a type of Christ. Now, how, you may ask, because how, I mean, these people couldn't be more different, right? I mean, Adam was placed in paradise, given a test, and he failed. Jesus was placed in the wilderness, given a test, and he passed. But Adam is a covenant representative, okay? He is a covenant representative. Some people speak about this as a public person. In other words, he is, he is one who is put forth as a representative of many He is the head of the human race. When God issued the command to Adam in the garden, he established what is commonly referred to as the covenant of works. The covenant of works. Other people call it the covenant of life. Other people call it the covenant of creation. The covenant of works is the typical phrase for it. There's some controversy over the nature and terminology of the covenant. We'll go more into that in two weeks. But for our purposes today, it is enough to know that God made an arrangement with Adam in Eden. Okay, for a covenant, you need several things there to, be, to, to, to happen. You need two parties. You need a uh, sort of a command or a stipulation. You need a reward for obedience. And you need a punishment for failure. And that's exactly what you see here in the garden. You've got God making a covenant with Adam. You don't see the word covenant there, but he's making a covenant with Adam. He's making an arrangement with him. Obey. Here's the test. The test is the tree. If you obey, you'll get life. If you disobey, you get death. Those are all the elements there for a covenant. He gave a command in the form of a prohibition. Do not eat from the tree the knowledge of good and evil. He promised punishment for violating the command. In the day in which you eat of it, you will die. And of course, there's inferred in that promise of death is a blessing had he obeyed, which would be unlimited access to the tree of life, which was barred after Adam failed. Now, Adam, as we said, is a covenant representative. That means that even though the covenant was made with Adam, he, Adam, was a stand-in. He was a representative for the entire human race. In fact, the word Adam is often referred to as his name, but in Hebrew it just means man. It's just the word for man, which could be generic. It could refer to all of humanity. But Adam is there. He is a representative, a stand-in, a federal head, if you want to use that term, for the whole human race. So in a very real sense, the whole human race was there in Adam in the garden. So when he sinned, we all sinned. This is very important to understand because Adam is, as Paul says, a type of him who was to come, a type of Christ. So just as Adam was the covenant representative for the covenant of works, Jesus is the covenant representative for the covenant of grace. That's why Paul can say in 1 Corinthians 15, verses 20 and, or 21 and 22, for since by man came death, By man also came the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, in Christ all shall be made alive. Again, you've got that 
you know, it's very similar language that you see to in the rest of Romans 5 here. This, this, this idea that if you're in Adam, you're, you're going to die. But if you're in Christ, you're going to be alive. Two Adams, two covenant heads, two people who are our representatives. 1 Corinthians 15, 45 says, And so it is written, the first man, Adam, became a living being. The last Adam, Jesus, became a life-giving spirit. I may be like, well, I didn't vote for Adam. <laughs> okay, my mail-in ballot got lost in the mail. I didn't vote for him. I think the election is rigged. I don't like Adam as my representative. He was a horrible representative. I want to vote him out of office. Too bad. This is the system that God set up. God put Adam in there. And if you think you could do better than Adam, I'm sorry, you're not going to. Adam is the pinnacle of humanity outside of Jesus Christ. He was the perfect man. He was created in true holiness and righteousness. He had not sinned. There would have been, before the fall, there would have been no human being that would have been better than Adam. And he failed. So, saying, well, I would have done better. No, you wouldn't have. (laughs) Just flat out wrong. You would not have done better. So in Adam all die, and that's why death reigned from Adam to Moses, even though there was no law. And we die because we have inherited Adam's guilt. We inherited his corrupt nature. Two things which already condemn us before any actual sins of our own. So even you don't even need a law to... You don't need to have your own sins, in a sense, then to be condemned. You're already condemned because you inherit Adam's guilt. You inherit Adam's corrupt nature. Now, in two weeks, when we meet again, we'll pick up in Romans 5.15. And we should be able to finish chapter 5. And we'll look a little more into this comparison of, uh, that Paul makes between Adam and Christ. We'll discuss a little more about the covenant of works, covenant of grace. And we'll discuss more this phrase, this death in Adam, life in Christ concept that Paul makes here and that he also makes in 1 Corinthians 15.